0: what you see mainly depends on what you look for. What you see mainly depends on what you look for. A wise man once said, the optimist sees the donut. The pessimist sees the hole. What you see depends on what you look for. Someone else said that life is 10% what you make it. But it's 90 percent how you take it. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would help us to see what you've prepared for us, that you'd help us to receive what you've prepared for us personally, each one of us, with so many different people in so many different circumstances so many different needs, so many different journeys. God, would we see what you've prepared for us and would we be willing to receive it? We commend ourselves to you and the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Scriptures. We thank you for this time set aside to gather. Lord, wherever people are who are listening, whether here in the building or online, God, we know your Holy Spirit works in so many different ways. Your outside time, you're working, before this and beyond this, from our perspective, but God, you are working nonetheless, and we thank you for the work you're doing. And we yield ourselves to it. We choose to yield ourselves to it. (coughs) Amen. Well, welcome to our new series. It's called Supernatural. In this series, it's going to be over June and July. We're going to look at quite a... Range of the various aspects of life. Uh, and the phrase that I'm using is really just the, the extraordinary life that Jesus has prepared for all of us. This is all about living the life that everyone's supposed to enjoy. Uh, and implied, as implied in the subtitle, I'm going to suggest to you that not everyone actually does live that life, even though Jesus makes it available. At the beginning of their time together, I read to you the beginning of a story from John chapter 9. And uh, I really encourage you to go and read the whole story because I'm really going to bounce through it uh, a little bit quickly in the introduction here. It's, it's, it's a fascinating demonstration of Jesus living the life of the supernatural life, which was actually his natural life. It's a fascinating story, but it's full of irony. It's full of irony and it's actually full of humor. And if you slow yourself down to read it, you might find it. It's a fascinating story. So as I read earlier, Jesus is just passing along. He's walking. And there's a man begging because when you can't see, you can't work. When you can't work, you can't eat unless you can beg. And everyone knew who he was. And Jesus, it says, as he passed by, he saw the man. His disciples also saw the man who was blind, and in their mind they thought he must have done something wrong, he must have sinned, or perhaps his parents had sinned, and therefore the punishment from God was him blind. It's in the story. Read the story. Jesus says, neither the man nor his parents have sinned, but the work of God would be revealed. And he spit in the mud, told the dude to wash, and lo and behold, he was healed not the end of the story. Read the chapter and see that there's a funny argument that this man has in the the middle uh, of the story. In in John chapter 9, they're kind of like, well, we heard a guy was healed, but where is he? And they're saying, is he here? Is he there? Was this him? And they're having this this debate. It's almost like a, a comedy scene. But then they worked out that it was the Sabbath. And as far as the Pharisees are concerned, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. And They considered healing a man by spitting in the mud was work. So they assumed that Jesus must be a sinner. They're astonished at this healing. And in fact, you read, the man confesses in here. I'll read it in a minute. But no one has ever been healed like this, he says, in the Scriptures. What What I'm pointing to in the story is the Pharisees. The Pharisees are arguing that it can't be true because it doesn't match their perception, their view of the world. See, what you believe is what you look for, and what you look for is actually what you're going to see. They thought Jesus was a sinner. What we see mainly depends on what we look for. But John, John chapter 9, if I just jump down to verse 24, so they again called the man. So they've already had one round of discussion with him. Again they called him. And said, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner, meaning Jesus. And he answers them. He says, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's like, you're missing the point of the story. I can see. I've never been able to see before. And they said to him again, what did he do to you how did he open your eyes? As if it was a natural occurrence, a natural a work of a man. And he said to them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He's, he's, taking, the, he's taking the mickey out of them. These are the Pharisees, the leaders of the church. He's like, guys, you're not listening. The optimist sees the doughnut. The pessimist sees the whole. They couldn't, it's not on their grid to expect that, that someone would be healed by God. John 28, John 9 verse 28, they reviled him. It means they spoke harshly to him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples, which was their high esteem of the Pharisees. We know that God spoke to Moses as this fellow. We don't know where he's from. The man answered, why this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he's open wise. He's like, dude, you guys are the leaders of the church, and you don't know who this guy is. There's this this banter that goes on, but essentially what I'm saying is the Pharisees were rejecting the fruit of the ministry because they weren't prepared to see it for what it truly was. And then this guy who's been blind all his life is literally taking the mickey out of them, going, it's actually real, I can see. Turns out, if you read verse 34, it says they still judged him. You were completely born of sin, and you're teaching us? So they're putting him down. They're judging him. And it says they cast him out, kicked him out of the church. You don't match what we think, so you're out. What a loss. But it's not the punchline. John chapter 9, verse 40. So Jesus has a chat with him. And actually, to be honest with you, I'm skipping it, but it's a really good chat. You should read it, because he ultimately confesses that Jesus is the Lord. It's a key point. I don't want to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. But verse 40, I'm trying to make a point. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard the words that Jesus said and said to him, are we blind also? And then Jesus responds, and it's kind of like one of the Jesus mic drop moments. I mean, they didn't have microphones, but... It's kind of like you could hear you would be hearing a pin drop in this conversation when Jesus says this next phrase. John chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus replies to them If you were blind, you would have no sin. But you now say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. So what Jesus is saying is, well. If you actually were physically incapable of seeing, I wouldn't hold this against you. But because you claim you can see, it's a sin. And I'm like, I'm, I'm chewing on this this week, and I'm like, what does this mean? Here's what, I, here's what I've come to. And, and this is a word for the church. So if you count yourself part of the church, hear this because he's speaking to the church. It's a sin to say you live in God's kingdom and yet not believe the reality of life that Jesus makes available. He's saying it's a sin to say you can see and then not believe. So it sets me up for the series, this because I don't want us to be a church that is in sin saying we believe in Jesus and yet not live in the reality that he makes available. The whole goal of this series is to draw us in. It's to, it's to have us maybe lift ourselves in our expectations of life as we partner with Jesus, as we live the life that he makes available. And I'm going to point you to that this morning. As followers of Jesus, our expectation should that we we should grow in maturity, that we should elevate ourselves beyond where we are today. It means living a, a, a life the way that Jesus lived his life, living the life everyone is supposed to enjoy. And don't take that as a criticism or a put down, take it as an invitation. There's life for all of us. So in this series... Called supernatural, we're going to talk about things that are supernatural. The word uh, in the scriptures for this, which um, we might get to, is dunamis, the power that can only be credited to God, not to man, to God. And and, and the truth is also, you might say to me, well, supernatural is one word, but, but I purposely put a hyphen in it. Because I want you to create a contrast between your natural and his super. But you've got to remember that for God, our super is his normal, his natural. Like, it's all supernatural in his life. And yet we make a distinction between doing the groceries and praying for healing. But my invitation, my Putting the hyphen in there is that we would, we would hope that our natural would become his natural. I'm going to do a message that I'm, um, I haven't given a title yet, but I want to talk about the priesthood of all believers that Peter writes about. And in that, I, I want you to recognize that if you're a believer, then you're part of the all. And if you're part of the all, then there's a priesthood for you to carry. that's given by Jesus, All. No preference in the Holy Spirit. There's no rank and order. Invitation is there for all. Going to look at the lifestyle of miracles we should be expecting. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing people in to help us with that. Pastor Trevor next week carries an anointing. Uh, and I've just said, do what you want to do. But we're focused on the supernatural. So I'm going to go to his church to preach next week, and he's going to come here. We're going to swap. So be nice to him, please. He's a friend. Pastor Sheridan's going to come in the middle of July. They are in a, in a series looking at back to the future around Pentecost and, and the, the, the integration of Pentecost into our normal. And so I've said, well, that's a good subject. That fits. Let's talk about that. I mark, the 25th of um, July is a miracle Sunday. And I've been really looking far and wide for someone to invite in to do the miracles. And this week, God said to me, dude, it's you. Have some confidence in yourself, and I'll share a bit about that at the end. So why would you want to engage in this series, though? Like, I mean, is this, this, you might go, oh, it's not my cup of tea. And, and, and the urgency and the, and the motivation for you should be found in John chapter 9, verse 41. It is a sin for you to say that you live in God's kingdom and yet not believe or embrace the reality of life that Jesus makes available. There's your motivation. Get what you can, glean what you can out of it. And in that I'm wondering, which way are you really looking at the scriptures? If you look at the scriptures one way, you might say you could see one thing, and then you might say to me, well you're just looking at the scriptures a different way than I am. So of course you see something different. Reality is, uh, the, 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 like, your perspective dictates what your life experience is. What you see is what you get. Perspective matters. So I want to begin the series, and, and I want to say to you that there is a key to kingdom culture. When I, when, I, when I set the series up, I wanted us to think about what it's like to live in the culture of heaven, The kingdom of God. The kingdom is the the king's domain, the rule and reign of the king. Who is the king of all kings? Come on, say his name. It's Jesus. So the kingdom is the domain of Jesus in our lives, the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. And there's a culture for that. It's a a way of living. And so this is the first message. And if if you're online or you're listening to it on the audio, this is message number one. Make sure you get all of them. But you'll notice there's just one key. One key, not seven, not not three. I'm gonna share just one key, and it's literally gonna kill you. So let's proceed. I thought what I would do at the beginning is I would define culture, and I thought this was an interesting conversation starter. What is culture? This is just a real quick search I did online, a bunch of different dictionary definitions, and and this one seems to fit. It says, culture is defined as the way of life of a particular people as shown in their ordinary behavior and habits, their attitudes toward each other, and their moral and religious beliefs. Well, let me ask you this then. What does it mean to you when you read the way of life? Someone call out what it says to them. What does it mean when it says the way of life of a particular people? How you behave every day. Good answer. What else? How you treat people is in there as well, if you think about the third line. What else does it say? What's normal for us? When we speak about organizational culture, we say this is how we do things around here. It's our culture. And I've got a slide to point to that for Zion. What it says, and their ordinary behavior and habits implies that we do this all the time. As shown, well done. So it's not just talk, it's action. It's observed. Good point, Doug, that's amazing. How we educate people in this place... Like our children, so, so we would raise our children. This is how we live as a family. This is what we do on a Sunday. This is how we appreciate what God's done for us. That's culture, it's family culture. Traditions. Yeah. The attitude toward each other, it comes out to what Kathy said, is that's actually impacting how we interact one well with each other. And if I'm calling it kingdom culture, then I have to say to you, it's predefined. And it's not like, hey, let's have a all, let let's have a meeting and we'll decide what's important to everybody and we'll mix up something and make it work. Um, no, it already happened and it was canonized, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Kingdom culture its already in a book and the book's got to become part of us. But still, someone's going to say to me, but but, but it matters. It matters which way you see the world. And I'm going to say no. Someone else is going to say to me, well, my view is important. I want you to value my view. And I'm going to say no. Someone says, well, I need to protest because I, I need to be heard and I need to be appreciated and I'm going to lovingly say no. Because this is the problem That we have in the church. But let's change the picture. Let's change the picture. So, for those, Paul's helped me because sometimes he listens to these messages. He's like, dude, you need to explain the pictures for someone who's listening in their car. Good advice, thank you. So, if you're listening in your car, what we're looking at is a picture of two people and they're looking at a number drawn on the ground. And to the man on the left, it looks like a number six. So he's telling his friend, it's a number six. The person on the right-hand side of the picture is looking at the same number from the other side. And it's a nine. This is what they're arguing. Because, like, to be honest, people make a grievous mistake and they say, well, both are right. Both people are right. The common thought is, I mean, it's all in the media, and it's all in the, in the schools, and it's all in the newspapers. The common problem is, we just let people define truth as they see it. Boy or girl? Depends how you see it. Married or not? Depends how you see it. Is that law or not? Well, it depends how you see it well, what's truth? Oh, it depends how you see it. And it's grievous in the world. The world's broken because people define their own truth. They take the Bible and they twist it to suit their preference or their comfort or their culture or how they're feeling. I mean, God should make us comfortable, shouldn't he? So what if we were to change the picture on the screen? Still a person on the left and person on the right. But what if you were the person on the left? And what if God was the person on the right? And instead of a number on the ground, what if Jesus was sitting there? Are you prepared to yell out an answer that's contrary to what God says? Like, if it was me, I'd wait to see what he said first. And then I'd say that. But this is what we do when we define truth, boy or girl. Oh, you choose. I mean, you're four now. You can choose for yourself. We can grow up when you need to. You know, don't take responsibility for your mistakes. It's just a, it's important that you feel okay. The world is broken. People define their own truth. And I got to this point and I realized, you probably think I'm talking about life today, but I'm not. There was a pastor, his name was, let me get his name right, I've been practicing it all week, Epaphras, and he was in Ephesus and got saved by the gospel message about Jesus Christ when a little dude called Paul started preaching in a city that was rife with sexual promiscuity and men living with men and laws unto themselves and we worship Diana and weird stuff going on. Trust me, the politics was rife. Oh, my goodness. You think our government's bad. And, and Paul says to Epaphras, well, let's plant a church. So Epaphras goes off on his, on his, um, with his, well, just sandals probably, you know, and a coat. And he plants three churches, and one of them was a church in Colossae. And he plants this church, he's a new pastor, and it's going well, and happy clappy, and you know, honeymoon period, and then everyone goes, actually no, this is a bit uncomfortable. And we think that the wisdom of the Greeks is what we need in the gospel, so we're going to bring that into the church. This is how we should interpret the writings of the prophets, because they didn't have the Bible. And this young pastor, Epaphras, is, is like pulling his hair out. And so he sends this text message to Paul, and he says, dude, you've got to help me out. And Paul's in prison by this stage. He's in Rome, and he gets this SOS message, and he says, I need to help my son. And he writes a letter to the church at Colossae and to Laodicea. It's what we know as the book of Colossians. So swipe to Colossians, put your finger in the page, whatever you need to do if you've got a book or a screen, because we're going to get there shortly. And and what's really, really important, and the reason why I'm making this stress at the beginning is actually what matters is our perspective, because what we see is what we get. So I want to start, first and foremost, with your view of Christ. Christ. So let's get that in perspective, and we're just going to use Colossians to do this, but um, just remember, you don't want to be saying something that God's not, right? So Colossians chapter 2, let's look at 9 and 10. For in him, he's talking about Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's exciting. In Jesus is all of God. Anything in all of creation Before time, outside of time, spirit, matter, physical, whatever, Paul says, in Jesus is the fullness of God. Let's make sure we know he's God. So that's awesome. And and, and I don't get many Christians that would argue that, to be fair. Like, we don't want to debate that. But what about the next verse? And you are complete in him you. He's writing to the church. He's writing to those that believe, the followers of Jesus. He's saying, in Christ is all the fullness of God, and in fact, you are in him, and you are complete in him. So our view of Christ should dictate our view of ourselves. You're in Christ, and we'll read that shortly. I'll back it up with Scripture. But if you're in Christ, all the fullness of God is in Christ, and then the fullness of Christ is in you because you're in Christ. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You have the mind of Christ, the power that created the heaven and the earth, all of it, you're incomplete in Christ. But are you saying six and God saying nine? Nine. really, really important right at the beginning, because we're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about a supernatural lifestyle, the kingdom of God in our lives for the sake of our community, and we better be singing off the same song sheet. Jesus has already shown us in John chapter 9, verse 41, that it's a sin to say we believe and yet deny the reality of his life, and we don't want that. So there's our motivation. And here's the title of today's message, The Key to Kingdom Culture, so that we would understand that accessing that life has a key. What is that key? Well, we're going to find out the key to living according to the lifestyle of Jesus, the single key that brings us to the place where we can incorporate the extraordinary way by a human perspective, but the ordinary way by God's perspective. Let's look at it His way. God's natural we define as supernatural, but let's become our normal. let it become our culture, our way of living, our way of life that we do every day, that we do with each other, the way we interact. Are we expecting God to come down to our level? Or would it be better for us to rise to his? Before we do it in the scriptures, I, I, wanted to, I, I was reminded of this and I wanted to share it. Um, just after I came to Tiaamudu, Um, six years ago, so this was maybe four years ago, um, the Lord woke me up one night and said, we've got to build a culture of kingdom in the church. And by the church, he doesn't just mean us, but let's start here. And he gave me these seven phrases, which I'm going to put on the screen, and I had to get out of bed to write them down because I'm prone to lose these things. This is what we define as kingdom culture for Zion. Zion. It's on the wall in the offices. It's what I think about. Everything that I prepare is in line with this, but I don't necessarily get the list out and show it to you often enough. And that's on me. That's my fault. So I wanted to share it today. I wanted to show it to you. You can take a photo of it, or you can come into the office, and we'll print you out a copy. It'll be in the slides. So if you want to download the church app on your phone or your device, I'm putting my slides into the, um, the message series in the app. But what does it actually say? We're a family. We love without conditions. We serve sacrificially. We see from heaven's perspective. We speak life, not death. We believe in spiritual authority, and we champion spiritual growth. So when we say, this is how we behave around here, this is what we believe around here, this is how we do life and faith with kingdom culture, these statements are a way that we describe it. I like to use these as a yardstick. Is this how I'm living? Because if I, I don't feel like family, then I don't point the finger at anyone, it's on me. I have to act like family. If I don't feel like, I'm, like I'm, that, that service is happening, then I just up my serving game. I sacrifice more and serve more. If I'm not sure about what I'm facing, then I don't complain about it. I say, God, how do you see things? Heaven's perspective. Culture defines how we live but it's personal and it's on you. And I don't say that to criticize, I say it to empower and enable. So if you want a copy of this, I'd be more than happy to get it printed for you or to send it to you as an image you can have on your computer. Let's jump into the scriptures. You've probably got your finger marking uh, Colossians. We find ourselves in Colossae and Paul's in prison. He's in Rome and he gets this letter. I talked about this before. The church... People are trying to change the culture of the church, and Pastor Epaphras is pulling his hair out. He's like, Paul, what do I do? And so he gets this letter, and it's a letter of correction. The intention of this letter was that it would be read in a public meeting, which is like a synagogue meeting or a house church meeting, uh, but it will also be shared. So it would be taken down to Laodicea. It would be read there to the church gatherings there. I mean, they, these days they were meeting beside the river. They were meeting in the marketplace. They were meeting in someone's home. It was to be read in a public place. But Paul writes a very direct letter. If you study the book, which we're not going to do today, but if you study it, it's a very direct letter that Paul writes in stern language to bring correction to the church. He speaks in very plain tones, and it's about the doctrine of faith, which we will look at. But I want to I highlight this because it's relevant. People trying to bring their truth into the church to make it comfortable for themselves is a form of Gnosticism, and I spoke about this earlier this year. When I define what is true according to my perspective and how I feel, I make God a consultant and I elevate the God of self. If it's true for me, and I'm happy about that, but it's contrary to this word of God, that's Gnosticism, and God will judge it accordingly. And this is what we see in the world today. It's what we see in the Church of Colossae. It's what we see in the media. I will define what is true. Thank you very much. This is the way people think and talk now. And Paul writes this letter to combat that. So we can use this letter to combat it in our world. So what does he say? Let's look at the first one, Colossians 1 verse 10. Paul says that you may be worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is Paul's desire He's a spiritual dad. He's he's seen a papyrus come to faith. He's raised Timothy from from a young boy in faith. He's, He's seen these churches plant and thrive and struggle. And his heart is, look, I love you and I want you to know that you would be walking a life worthy of the Lord. Be pleasing to God, fruitful in all things that you do, and increasing in your knowledge in God. Colossians 1 verse 10 outlines for us what Paul's expectation is for the church, the members of the church. Colossians 2 verse 12 gives us a little bit of an understanding of how Paul sees the doctrine of our faith. He says, you uh, were buried in him, Christ. You were buried in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So this is just spelling the basics out. Because if you were baptized in water, you were, you were entered the grave. You entered the grave of Christ. You were dead to your life. But the good news is you didn't stay in the grave and you were raised out of it into the resurrection life of Christ, which is the work of God. This is our faith, our Christian faith. This is what we should believe. And it's fundamental, it's basic, it's the most simplest form of explanation, and yet it's the most important. The old is dead, the new life has come. And then we get to our main passage for today. Colossians chapter 3, let me just read the first two verses. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ... Considering he just said that. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is Paul calling them to elevate their perspective, to elevate their expectations to a different level. He says, he doesn't say, if you were raised, meaning, well, I'm not sure, because he's just spoken that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. So he's saying, since then, some translations say, since then you have been raised. You're the church. You've been through the baptism in water. You've hopefully been through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a signifying the death of the old nature and the resurrection of the new life. And this, to me, these two verses and the ones that follow, they're going to describe to us the culture of the kingdom of heaven, how we're supposed to live. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 that I read, I've kind of said, well, that's kind of like the purpose of heaven, really. The purpose of God's heart for us Christians is that we walk in faith, worthy of a life, being fruitful, and we grow in knowledge. Like, that's, that's your job description as a Christian. It's like how we live around here. It's what your expectation is as a family. It's like, you come to my house, you know, um, we have dinner, and we, what do we do after dinner? We do the dishes. Why? Because that's what we do around here. Well, the kids do the dishes. Because that's how we roll. Whatever it is in your family is how you live. This is what Paul said. This is the expectation. The process of heaven, or the, the, the doctrine of heaven, is, is in verse 12 of the second chapter. Baptized into death, resurrected into life through the working of God who raised Jesus. But the priority of heaven, the culture of heaven, we see in Colossians 3. So let me keep it really narrow. And I'm keeping it narrow because I don't want you crying out six and God crying out nine. What is the key to living kingdom culture? Very, very simply, how do we apprehend this life for us? And so I want to convince you with Scripture. This would be a list that you should write down, take a photo of, or get from the church app this week. Colossians 1, verse 13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. God has done that work. God has done that work. Let me read to you Romans chapter six from verse three. Do you not know that as many of us are baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, our old life, our old person, was crucified with him, with Jesus, That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we also would live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, He lives to God. This is us. This is good news, folks. You can put a smile on your face. It's talking about you and the life you get to experience. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, God, verse 4, God who was rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sin, Made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding richness of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. People, this is good news. And lastly, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. These are Paul's words to us, so it's no surprise that it sounds very, very similar to what he writes to us in Colossians chapter 3. This passage of Scripture, Colossians 3, verse 1 to 15, or maybe even as far as verse 17, the end of his thought there, you could read that this week, and I encourage you to take it into your devotion time this week. If you're driving in your car, get the Bible app and get them to read it to you. Have the Word of God in your ear and in your mind. Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses. This passage gives us the key action. And this is the takeaway. This is it. Keep it simple for all of us. Colossians 3 verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, and it lists them in case you're not clear, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now put off all these other things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another, because you've put off your old man in Christ. So what is he saying? Stop doing those things that are the former nature. Put off the old man. Don't live according to the flesh. But instead, he says in verse 12, put on kingdom culture, as the elect of God put on, and he lists them, and I'll let you study that list. This is a really, really important word, and there's a reason for that. I've been like a scratch record for over 12 months. In uh, lockdown 1.0, we were praying twice a day on Zoom, we were praying scriptures as we do, and we, we kind of came to Joshua 3, verse 5, and it became an anchor for us, an anchor scripture. Because the Lord said to us, Consecrate yourselves. This is the words of Joshua 3, verse 5. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you will see the Lord do wonders amongst you. And we went round and round and round that. And the Lord said, consecrate yourselves. Now why would we do that? Well, because tomorrow, meaning soon, I mean with the Lord of the days like a thousand years, so but it's the next moment tomorrow you will see, meaning you will observe, you will participate, you will be part of what God is doing. You will see the Lord do wonders amongst you, which is a supernatural lifestyle. Signs and wonders that give glory to him. The dunamis power of God that can only be credited to God is what we should be expecting in our life together. But the Lord says, consecrate yourselves. What does consecrate mean? It means to prepare yourself, to cleanse yourself, to set yourself apart for work unto God, that you would be a holy member before God, which means you should put off the things of this earth, Clothe yourselves with his righteousness in the kingdom of culture of heaven. It's really important that we do that, because if we don't, we don't get the tomorrow. And I'm sounding like a scratch record, but I can't talk about supernatural lifestyle that God's got for us and the signs and the wonders and the priesthood of all believers. I can't talk about that if we haven't done the first part, which is consecration. And, and the good news is, Jesus is our example. He's the perfect example. And what Jesus shows us is that without death, there can be no resurrection. For you were baptized into his death in order that you would be raised into his life. You don't get raised unless you went into the grave. So, what's the key? The key to kingdom culture is your death, it's personal. It's um, painful, but we should make it a priority. Look, I just made three Ps out of that. It's personal, it's painful, but you should make it your priority. I'm I'm not prepared, So I'm speaking for me personally. I'm not prepared to keep life the same. I don't want it. I despise the thought of it. Covet the idea, I, I look forward to anticipation, of the idea of God saying, Tomorrow you're going to see signs and wonders. So I have to submit myself to the consecration. So that's what I've been doing. Personally, painfully. So I think God's calling us higher. He wants each one of us, and He wants our town to experience through us the supernatural lifestyle. But He's not going to use us if we're not consecrated. Because when the fire of God falls, there's two things that happens: it burns off anything that's unholy, and it glorifies what is holy. There's only two outcomes. When the fire of God does fall, I want to be that holy one and the righteousness of Christ, but it requires my death. My testimony from this week is that um, weeks ago, I had felt the nudge that I needed to get some help in that. So I went and booked myself for a Sozo appointment in Hamilton. Sozo is an inner healing ministry that um, we've been trained in. We, Michael and I minister in that here. We, we trust it, um, but I have to submit myself to it. And I went, and I went hungry. And I went desperate. God moved powerfully. The time I had in Hamilton. (laughs) Uh, It was really, really good. Really affirming and freeing. And the keys to freedom is found in repentance and forgiveness. So I spent 90 minutes doing that, led by the ministers and loved by them into healing. how you do that if we can be a part of that we'd love to be a part of that not to have the answers but to help you find the one who is the answer like your best prayer could be God what would you like to get rid of what can I put to death today and let him do it it's private and personal it's painful but make it a priority but God is calling us higher into greater things, that we would demonstrate His glory to those that have not yet seen Him or know Him. And I'm desperate for that in Tealbe. Why? Because He's promised it. And he who promises these things is faithful to these things. But He chooses to limit Himself to work through us. So the shortcoming is not on Him. It's on you and me. And my prayer for this church is that we would be a church that offers our bodies as a living sacrifice brought for Him, that we would die to ourselves, to our motivation. We would die to our ambition. We would die to our preference. We would die to our comfort and our our bitterness and our unforgiveness or our anger. We would die to all these things that are of the flesh, and we would rise victorious with Christ into the life and the resurrection life that He's got for us. I'm desperate to experience that personally, but I'd love... (laughs) Like, Paul, I'd love for you to experience it also. So kind of in my notes, I wrote this to close. If you're willing to die, just stand. And I'm going to pray. Lord God, as we come before you, we receive your word as the holy word and we choose to yield ourselves to your work. God, I pray that for those that have listened and will listen to this message, that your spirit would work, that your spirit would work in each one of us. You'd continue to do the work that you've begun, that you would continue to lead us in the journey of consecration before you, that we would be able to cry, holy is the Lord, most worthy of all praise, that we would be received by him, consecrated and prepared for the sovereign move of God that is coming. God, once again, we lift up our town. Our motivation is not for our own comfort, but we choose to die to ourselves in order that people in Tiaomuru, the Waipa, and the Waikato would see Christ. That they would come to know the power and the glory and the love of the resurrection life that Jesus makes available. It is the life that everybody is supposed to be living. So we say, come Holy Spirit, come and do your work in us, we pray. (sighs) Lord, I pray your blessing on this church family, those that are here, those that are doing church without walls in some other place, God, I bless them. They would know the intimate presence of God in their midst, wherever they are. That they would know the empowering grace of Jesus Christ that enables them to live the supernatural lifestyle. Come, Lord Jesus, and have your way in us, we pray. Amen.